something you've got to learn very quickly in order to publish stuff online especially is to not be a perfectionist because that can just really hold you back. Welcome to Latitude, the show for freelancers, founders, and creators about all of the non-business parts of running a successful business. I interview folks who are defining work for themselves. We take a look at the mindset and methods it takes to create the latitude you need to do your most creative work. This week, I'm talking with Charlie Marie. Charlie is the marketing design lead at the email automation software company, ConvertKit. But today, we'll be talking about everything side project related. She's a conference speaker, podcaster, and YouTuber. Her design-focused YouTube channel has grown to almost 150,000 subscribers, and this has led to a variety of new opportunities for her. We talk about the habits and routines needed to make progress on side projects, the trade-offs between traditional education and being self-taught, and some of the benefits of going to conferences. All right, so this week um, we have Charlie Marie on the podcast, and really happy to have you here, Charlie. Thanks for having me. And so I want to kind of kick it all the way back to kind of the very start of your side projects and kind of get a sense of like how and when you first got started with your very first side project. Okay. So my first side project was a t-shirt business called Liner Note Kids that I started while I was in university. And it didn't start out as a side project, really. It definitely didn't start out as a business. It just started out as a little thing that I wanted to make, basically. Um, So what I was doing was creating these lyric graphics, like lyrics from my favorite songs, making a little typographic piece with them. It was all using grungy fonts from defont.com and that sort of thing. (laughs) You know, that's what you do uh, 10 years ago. (laughs) Uh, So I'd make these little graphics and I posted them to Tumblr because that was also a thing back in the day. And people really seemed to like them and they they were like, oh, I'd wear this. It was on a T-shirt. And that like sparked something in me where I was like, could I do that? Like, could I put this on a T-shirt? Could I make that happen? Um, and so I just, I kind of figured that all out. I figured out how to get T-shirts printed, connected with a local printer in Wellington, New Zealand, where I was living at the time, uh, and made it happen. And I I started selling T-shirts. And that that little business grew a lot over the years. I learned a lot of things. Um, it came to an end recently, right, recently-ish, kind of last year was really um, its its swan song. But yeah, that was my first side project that really started out not as a side project or a business, just me messing <laughs> around in Illustrator making a lyric graphic. Awesome. Well, and I mean, I think that's like how a lot of side projects start out. And like, yeah, I thought that was like particularly interesting because I mean, you've like shared, you shared the... Um, the office pop punk video. Um, and then we kind of went and shared some playlists and stuff. And, um, Brendan was also on the show. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, I think that kind of like grungy, like stuff like that's great. And I like, I recognized, I saw some of the shirts and I was like, Oh, that was like when she discovered lost type Mm co-op and like mm -hmm. league of movable type. (laughs) And like, that was when I was kind of first getting into design. So it was kind of really cool to see like that evolution, I guess. And so then I guess after that, or maybe during that, um, you can kind of clarify, but then you actually went to design school. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So um, that t-shirt company started while I was in design school. Um, I went to university straight out of high school. I'd done a few like design, graphic design classes in high school and really liked it and learned during those that, oh, okay, design can actually be a career. Uh, so yeah, I went went on to study it. And the way we do like university in New Zealand is you kind of do pick a focus straight away. I know things are a little bit different in the US, but 
yeah, went straight into learning design. So I have a, a bachelor of design majoring in visual communication design. That's the mouthful. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like, so I don't come from a design background. Um, I graduated with a degree in economics, but then kind of after that took a handful of design classes and kind of like discovered the UI UX side of things. And I know there's kind of this big debate over um, how valuable design school is, like what sort of people it's valuable for. I think I'm kind of like more interested in kind of the aspects that you did get out of it. Um, And specifically with kind of like applying it to some of your like side projects or just in general, what has kind of been the things that do continue to be useful from design school? I think honestly, one of the main things that I learned from design school was the discipline to work on projects um, that I don't think I would have had if I had tried to teach myself. Um, I would have been all over the place. I wouldn't have known where to start. Um, I think I wouldn't have pushed myself far enough. I really enjoyed having the tutors at design school to like help you develop your ideas and tell you, no, you've only done one draft. You're not finished yet. I know you think it looks cool because this is the thing you haven't you know, been able to make before and you suddenly did, but you can do better than this and um, you know, need to push you further. So I really appreciated that part of design school and that like value of critiquing your own work and getting critique from others, getting used to that was, was really useful. But I think most of all design school taught me to think like a designer and how to approach problem solving using design, how to take a brief and, you know, use design thinking to get to the end result. It was, I feel like a lot of um, people when they're trying to learn design themselves, be self-taught, they focus too much on the tools on, oh yeah, I'm learning design. So I'm learning how to use Photoshop. I'm like, okay, well, that's two different things. Like, yeah, you can, you can use Photoshop without being a designer. Uh, you can also be a designer without using Photoshop these days, you know, <laughs> but yeah, that's the main thing. I think that design school showed me how to learn design. It showed me where to put my focus and, um, taught me discipline and critique. Awesome. And so for folks that don't come from a design background and aren't really familiar with design thinking, um, what would you kind of give as like, the short version, how they can kind of apply that to their own side projects? Obviously, that's a huge question, but um, I'll kind of let you take it where you'd like. I think that really the main thing is to ask why a lot, like ask why to everything. So um, a client comes to you saying they need a flyer and you say, okay, why? Like, what are we going to use this for? That should be your first thing, not asking, okay, what do you want? What do you want to go on the flyer? What should it say? Right? You need to understand the reason why you're designing something and the reason why you're making something so that you can get to the right solution. Because if they, I don't, I don't know in this example, I'm thinking off the top of my head what they could say, but maybe it would turn out that actually what would serve them better than a flyer would be an email marketing campaign or a landing page on a website that they could share digitally. But they just think they need a flyer because that's not what they've seen other people do. So for me, design thinking is all about getting to the root of the problem uh, so that you can then come up with the ideal solution. And it's also about thinking about the user and the context in which the thing you've designed will be into. So just because you have something that looks great, like this little thing that looks good on your screen, but when it's printed out, the text is like overly large and looks odd. I think design thinking is taking all of that sort of stuff into consideration. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so it definitely sounds like kind of the visual aspect of it is like very secondary to kind of like some of those other things. Yeah, I think the visual aspect comes in later in the design process than perhaps a lot of people realize. 
you, you first start by understanding the problem and having these conversations and figuring out the context and all of that. And then you move into the visuals. Awesome. And then, I mean, it also kind of sounds like not only does it apply with, say, you're working with a client, not don't, only does it apply to asking why to the client, but even potentially like if you're building something that they're sharing with other people, figuring out who those other people are and asking them like why they're kind of doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so then kind of what was that next step after um, kind of going to design school? So I managed to land a job where I was working 30 hours a week or so at um, there were a company that distributed Mitsubishi electric products in New Zealand. So fridges and heat pumps and, you know, really exciting electrical gear like that. Uh, I managed to get a job as a graphic designer on their marketing team while I was still studying. So I was in my last semester, had one like course left to do. So that was really exciting because it meant that I left university and immediately they offered me a full-time job, which I took. Um, I had a lot of, a lot of peers, like in my in my class were holding out for the big agencies and the big names and that sort of thing and i i did kind of feel like a few people looked down on me for leaving design school and working as a graphic designer for this company that nobody had heard of doing stuff that isn't traditionally like what every designer dreams of that sort of thing jokes on them kind of because i left with a full-time job while they were still hunting for the whole summer um and so I'm really proud of myself for for landing that and for taking it and not being too picky when it came to that first job. Picky in terms of waiting out for the prestige of one, perhaps, because, yeah, I had been working there part-time and I knew that the job was a perfect situation for me to learn in and to keep developing because it was a small marketing team. I had a lot of responsibilities already, uh, which was super exciting that I was being entrusted with projects that early in my career. So. It was an it was a great first job. Well, and it sounds like um even just kind of being able to take that like small first step, like figuring out what that is. And so that was like taking that job or like designing a single t-shirt that kind of turned into this thing that existed for years. Now, before we jump into the next question, I want to pause for a minute and talk a bit about Podia. Podia is a platform for creating and hosting online courses, digital downloads, and memberships. More than that, though, Podia is a company that believes in and supports creators. They don't just build course software, they really enable people like us to do the work we love. I'm a longtime Podia user, along with a few of the guests on the show. My Podia course has directly led to thousands of email subscribers and five figures in revenue. As a designer, I definitely have a tendency of tweaking and perfecting everything, but most of the time, that's not what actually makes a difference. Podia makes it easy to focus on creating content that's useful and valuable, rather than getting distracted by design edits or a long technical setup process. It doesn't matter if you're an expert developer or creating your first ever digital product. Podia makes it fast and easy to create something that not only looks good, but converts well. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably working on creating something. Whether that's an app, a course, or an entirely new business, Creating something out of nothing is hard, but Podia makes creation a little bit easier. They're offering 15% off for life to listeners of the Latitude podcast. To get your discount or to just learn a bit more, go to podia.com latitude, or there's a link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the interview. 
And so kind of one way that like I'm familiar with your work uh, is through your YouTube channel. And so what was the first step that you took in creating that? So I started that because I started watching a lot of YouTube videos and basically just being really nosy in that I wanted to see the lives of other designers. I was really excited to find that sort of content. And I literally couldn't find it. I couldn't find a single person who was making design videos like of just them as a designer and what life was like. It was all tutorials. And by this stage, I felt like I knew how to use InDesign and Photoshop and I wasn't really interested in watching that sort of content, um, at least not following someone on YouTube for it. That was the sort of thing that I might just Google when I ran into mm. an issue, you know. So I decided that maybe I'd make that channel that I would want to show behind the scenes of what being a designer is like, I suppose. So that one, again, started with one little decision to make a video. Um, I had this idea for a video that I could make about Hand in Week, which was this week in design school where all the projects were due at the end of the semester. And it's like, it's hell. It's so busy. Everyone's stressed. No one gets any sleep. You're like going to the printers and this isn't coming out right. You're going to handle all these problems. So I had some tips for people to deal with that. And that was kind of like my deadline. I was like, okay, I know this week is coming up. I was out of university by this point, but you know, I still had connections to people who were there still. Uh, I've got to get this video out before then. And and that was my deadline that forced me to do it, basically. I, a big challenge I've had is I just released a course last year. Um, it is kind of mostly screencasts, um, but there are some sections where I'm on camera. Nice. Um, and it, like, it's, it was challenging to kind of like be comfortable and to like look comfortable on camera. Um, is that kind of something that you've faced with? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm not going to encourage anyone to do this. But if you went back to like scroll all the way back on my YouTube channel, look at some of my early videos, I think for the like first two years, I I look at those videos and I'm like, that's not me. That person in that video <laughs> right there is some person who's acting, putting on this weird voice and face. I don't know. Um, it takes a long time. And, and what was hard was maybe after about six months, I felt like I was comfortable on camera, but I definitely still didn't look it because mm-hmm. I don't know if I was comfortable. It's just that I was, I was kind of used to doing it, um, which is, is different things. So yeah, there's definitely a process to go through to get your full self on camera. It's kind of like writing. Um, Sean McCabe talks a lot about finding your hybrid voice, which is when you write, people often tend to go really formal strangely, because they feel like, oh, they're writing, it's got to be professional and all of this. And your hybrid voice is when you can write in a way that it sounds like you would be saying it as well. People couldn't read it and hear it in your voice because it's written how you would talk. So being on video is kind of like that too. But um, it's more in your like, you know, your presence, your hybrid presence of being on camera and being clear and, and professional, but also being yourself. And yeah, that's, that is really hard to get to. And unfortunately, the only way to get to it is just by making a lot of videos that are hella awkward for a while first. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, that exactly answered my next question about like, how do you do that? And it's just like, you do a lot of it. Yeah, you got to put in the time. <laughs> that's the same with kind of any sort of like design work mm-hmm, or development mm-hmm. work or any sort of skill, really. And I have to say kind of as research for the podcast, um, I did go through kind of a handful of your videos and I watched the um, your portfolio that you submitted to design school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, it was cool because it was awesome to see like, okay, it's like a process for everyone. And I think it's like so hard to just kind of like see where people are in their careers. Um, 
at that point and not see kind of like the whole background of it. Yeah, totally. Everyone, like everyone has this work that they don't really want to share from their past, but yeah, I chose to leave all those videos up on YouTube for the most part. There's a couple that I've deleted from early on. Um, just because, I don't know, I'm not embarrassed by them. They served their purpose at the time and I was really proud of them at the time I posted them. But it is it is kind of funny to look back on now that I feel like I've gotten a lot more comfortable on camera. Well, and I mean, I, I think it's a testament to that like you probably would have never been able to build the audience that you have built if you weren't like sharing those videos. Yeah. And I mean, I've definitely kind of had like through a handful of the interviews that I've done for this, like, they're challenging and there are definitely parts where I feel like, oh, I could have done this and I could have done this and I could have done this. But I mean, I'm still going to publish them all. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure like two years from now, I'll look back at it and just like, oh my God. But <laughs> I think being able to kind of recognize that you are in that learning process um, and still sharing it, which can be super hard, but is like so, so valuable. Yeah. I think that um, something you've got to learn very quickly in order to publish stuff online, especially is to not be a perfectionist because that can just really hold you back. I feel like doing YouTube has cured me of any sort of perfectionism that was within me before. I am absolutely not a perfectionist now. Uh, like I will get something to good enough and I'll be happy with it. And, you know, I know what is good enough because sometimes there's a quality level that is unacceptable to be below, which is, which is fair enough. But you don't have to make anything perfect before you share it because perfect is this like goalpost that keeps moving. The more you learn and the more you work on something, the more you look at something, you notice more issues with it. Uh, and if you hold yourself to that, you're probably never going to get there. Totally. And so then do you have kind of like a way to recognize what's good enough or that's kind of just come from doing a lot of them? Yeah, doing a lot of them and how I feel about it myself, you know, like, could I be proud of this? Mm -hmm. Great. Or mm, I really wouldn't be happy to put this out because of this annoying clip. Okay, well, we'll fix that then. That's not being a perfectionist. That is getting it to good enough. Mm -hmm. Whereas being a perfectionist would be more like, okay, um, I haven't got the split second right or I need this exact special effect in order to, to get it out there because that's a picture I have in my mind. Whereas sometimes there will be more I want to do to my videos, but I think to myself, okay, do I want to spend another week trying to work on that? Or would I rather have this out there and be having conversations with people in the comments and, and getting the feedback on it, getting people watching it? And I would always rather the latter because that's my favorite part of posting videos is getting a response and trying to help people, you know? Totally. Well, and I mean, I think that's like relevant for videos, for client work, oh, yeah. for building your own products, for anything. Like you're going to find more feedback by sharing the imperfect thing rather than trying to kind of like, fully form it in your head when you are creating something like that is valuable to someone else. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I think that like probably the YouTube vid videos um, were able to kind of like help you kind of get comfortable on um, on video. And then this past year, you've been doing a lot of speaking. So what was kind of that journey? That I feel like is something that I've wanted to do ever since I first went to my own design conference. And I don't know exactly why it's like part to do with wanting to get a message out there and, and wanting to wanting to be that person who can teach people and help people. But it's also like something I wanted to, wanted to have achieved in my career, right? Kind of like a status thing, which feels a little bit odd to, you know, to say that out loud. So no one judge me, please. But, you know, I wanted to be the kind of person and to, I guess, be a good enough designer and have that quality of work that people were wanting to invite me to speak at a conference. That felt like a marker of success for me. 
So yeah, it's something that I've wanted for a while. I had to get over this fear of public speaking in order to do it Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's just, I'm a ball of anxiety before I have to go up on stage and speak, but it's getting better with each talk that I do. So just like getting comfortable on camera, I'm like, you know, learning it as I go. And so then I'm sure it's kind of a combination of both, but how much do you think that it was like, you've improved enough as a designer that you have something to share versus like you now have the confidence to share Mm. those things. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And I think it's probably a mix of the both that I've, I'm far enough into my career now that I have learned a bunch of stuff that I could share. And also at the same time, I'm getting more confident with it. So I don't know which comes first in this chicken or egg scenario. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, almost circular, I guess. Yeah. And it was um, a marker of success for me again, when um, I got invited to speak at my first design conference, because to start with, after I'd been building this audience on YouTube, I would get invited to speak about YouTube things to, to other YouTube people, which was great. And it was good practice, but I was like, this isn't what I want to be known for. This isn't what I want to like get myself into doing. Um, I want to make sure I'm like design is my main passion and I want to make sure that that's what I'm trying to do. So I feel like I had to try really hard to to get on that. Um, I made my whole YouTube channel about design now. I used to do a bunch of different topics, which is when more of the general YouTube speaking requests were coming in. But now that it's all about design, I've spoken at um, a few events, like presenting workshops and giving talks about design, which has been really exciting because, yeah, that's what I wanted to be known for. And I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I would guess also that kind of through that niching down that that helped the growth of your like audience and of your channel as well. People love to be able to define you in some way. Again, I'm going to reference Sean McCabe because he just he has this great way of saying things that get stuck in my head. So one thing that he says is people want to put you in a box like they want to know how to categorize you. And it makes sense, right? Because it's so much easier to recommend a podcast or a TV show or something to a friend when you can be like, oh, it's this, it's this great YouTube channel and it's all about design and she shares her life and, you know, I learn things, but also it's just interesting to watch. Whereas mm-hmm. beforehand, when I was making videos at all these different topics, they might say, oh yeah, so she's a designer, but sometimes she makes fashion videos or like DIY projects, or maybe she'll cook something. Like no one's interested in that. That doesn't sound like something super enticing to follow. So yeah, by niching down your content, yeah, you help people to describe what you do. April Dunford talks a lot about like almost the exact same thing with product positioning. Um, It's like if you call your product a CRM, people are going to assume certain things about it. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that can be great because that can kind of be a way to show that you're different from all the other CRMs, but it also kind of like sets up those expectations that like you are what a CRM is. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's equally as relevant in your work as it kind of is in your life. Um, And so then kind of going back to the conferences, what have you seen of like the value of just like attending conferences um, rather than being a speaker? Because you've done both, right? Yeah, I have. In my, like earlier in my career, going to conferences was my way to keep in touch with what the like quote unquote real professionals were doing. And, you know, what are these people who are several steps ahead of me thinking about right now and focusing on because that gives me some ideas of where I should focus my efforts and what I should be thinking about and, and coming next. And I was more about soaking up the knowledge um, these days when I go to conferences, it is a little bit of that, but it's also just general inspiration to stay excited about design by looking at what other people are doing, but also meeting people like 
you know, finding someone else to talk to there who has an interesting story and expanding that creative network in a way. I basically think of a conference or a meetup or whatever I attend as a success. If I meet like just one person who I can have a good conversation with, then I'm like, great, that was worth my time. That was an awesome event. Awesome. And so I know ConvertKit, the company that you work for, hosts a conference. Um, Do you want to kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that conference is really fun because it's I get get to be involved in the organization of it as well. And it basically means that we get to put together our ideal conference in terms of suggesting the speakers and how the day should be arranged and all of that. So that's a lot of fun. I've been, I missed the first year, but I've been to the past two and I know I'm very biased, but it's my favorite conference. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I always meet a lot of great people there. Awesome. Yeah. I haven't really been doing the conference thing, but it's something that I'm kind of trying to be more mindful of next year. And so Crafting Commerce and MicroConf are kind of the two that are like at the top of my list so far. Nice. Yeah, I think it's fun because um, the level of people who are going to buy a ticket to a conference and then travel to Boise, Idaho, which is not a city that many people already live in, you know, who are, who are coming to it, um, you know that they're going to be really committed people and really motivated people. And so just that alone uh, is like a good marker of, of the kind of people that you'd, you'd meet there. And so kind of between your t-shirt business and the YouTube channel and speaking at conferences, um, and kind of having a full-time job as well, obviously, um, do you have kind of like a structured way that you kind of like plan that out and that you're able to kind of do all of that? You know, I used to be, we were just talking about this before, before we started recording. I used to be the type of person who would wake up really early and make sure I got two hours of side project work in before I started my work day. And I think that was like a hangover from when I worked in an office and I would have a commute. So, um, yeah, I would just, I think I was a lot more mindful of making use of that early morning time when I had work in a London office and needed to commute there each day. Time was perhaps a bit more precious to me because it was um, much more limited in terms of what I could do on my side projects. These days, especially since I just moved to Spain a couple months ago, life feels like it's been all over the place at the moment. And that routine has gone out the window. This morning, I woke up at like nine o'clock, which feels really late for me when I used to be someone who'd wake up at six or 6.30. So I've kind of been fitting inside projects where I can and taking the approach of every day doing something to move it forward. So deciding, okay, what side project thing do I need to achieve today? Like, um, for example, today I need to, someone is um, interviewing me for this Adobe thing and I need to answer their questions and send the email. So that's my like one thing. I'm going to sit down, do some writing and and send that off. And that all will have been me working towards my side projects that day. So I guess, um, yeah, these days I'm trying not to overstretch myself because I definitely did that and burnt out quite a bit on, on the side projects. Um, and it, it's really hard to learn from a burnout when all the work that you did and, you know, overworking yourself actually saw some success in the metrics, like in my YouTube channel growing a lot, my side project income growing a lot. So it was kind of hard to hold back, but you know, your, your personal health is important too. So yeah, these days I'm trying to put less pressure on myself with side projects and just trying to make them more of like a fun hobby again. I still do an income from them and I still do take them seriously, but just trying to make sure they're still fun as I'm working on them as well. And so then kind of when you were going through that burnout of kind of like 
being almost too invested in all of them. How did you kind of recognize that? And how did you sort of like get to being able to look at them as like more fun, fun projects now? I think that I'm only um, like, I've gone in ebbs and flows in this over the years where like I had a bit of a burnout and recovered from it, but then went straight back into doing exactly what I was doing. (laughs) Um, This time I'm, I feel like I'm still on the ramping back up again stage because the way I tackled the burnout this time was just to completely stop everything Uh, as much as possible. I would say no to stuff and just focus on getting my life together, making sure that I was moving to this new country, getting all that set up and, and that I was paying attention to all that and making that the most important thing that I was doing. And so now that I'm ramping up again, I'm, I guess, asking myself, like, what, what do I want to make? Like, what would be fun? And yes, people suggest videos all the time. And I know that a lot of people would watch a video if I did a portfolio review because people freaking love those. But I don't find them as exciting to make. So I'm not going to make that just yet until I feel like it. Uh, and just making sure that the decisions that I'm making for my side project are for me and for the enjoyment of them. Um, which sounds really selfish, but you know, I feel like I, I'm always going to make something that is the best thing I can make and that I feel like will help people, but I'm just making those decisions myself rather than forcing myself to listen to exactly what everyone else wants from me. Well, and I mean, it's hard too, because you want to create something that's valuable, but that like has so many expectations attached to it. Yeah. And I think like everyone that is like a creator in whatever sense that means is like creating because they enjoy creating. Um, And it's really easy for that to kind of like turn into something else. And so you do have to be like super mindful of kind of like keeping it fun um, and keeping it interesting. Yeah. Sarah Dietschy, I don't know if you've watched her YouTube videos before, but she has a really great way of thinking about this where she says, one for them, one for me. So every second video is going to be one that she knows her audience really wants and that they're going to like soak up the views and they're all going to come in. And then every other video is one that she just really wants to make. Maybe it's going to go down well, maybe it won't, but she wants to make it. So she's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an approach that I want to take going forward. Right now, as I'm ramping back up, I'm making sure I just do the ones that I want to make so that I can keep being motivated by it, keep being interested in it. But then I'll probably switch to to that way of thinking. Well, and one thing that I've seen too um, that I've kind of been experimenting with lately is like by setting really strict time limits um, and kind of similar to the way that you're setting like, oh, I'm going to do like one thing to move one project forward each day. You end up spending maybe less time, but you end up spending more valuable time because it really kind of forces you to prioritize. Yeah, totally. And I'm a big fan of um, the Pomodoro technique. I like using the Forest app. I don't know if you've heard of that, where you mm-hmm. grow a tree, and if if you touch your phone while you've set the timer to you know have focus time, then the tree dies and it's really sad. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I like doing that, setting a 25 minute timer and trying to get as much as I can done in that 25 minutes. Well, and I guess because that's like, that's something that hasn't worked as well for me. Okay. If I am like working on something that I'm like really excited about, I don't want like a timer to go off Mm -hmm. after 25 minutes to kind of like pull me out of it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like a balance. And I think like maybe I kind of sway like slightly more towards one end of the spectrum, but it is about kind of like finding those things. And so like you found that it works for you. I find that like having larger blocks, like I would maybe set like an hour or two hours to just like focus on this thing. Whereas I can't focus for two hours straight. Like I'm like, I need to (laughs) get up and get a cup of tea or something. Um, Because I find that the work that I do just like gets 
less and less quality the more I try and force myself to stay in one place for that long. So yeah, um, and I often tend to use Pomodoro timers at the start of the day to get into my focus mode for the day, I suppose. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that learning how to focus is is a skill that you can learn that you just have to practice. So totally, yeah, the start of the day, if I do some Pomodoros, then I find I'm usually fine for the rest of the day to you know, go about things without having any timers because I got that kickstart. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that like kind of attaches onto something that is a little more kind of like widely true for people is that like having that like kind of quick win. Mm. And I think the one that we like that a lot of people like to talk about is like making your bed in the morning. Mm. So whether it's like making your bed or like doing a single Pomodoro or like figuring out what your most important task, like the actual techniques can all be useful, but it is the fact of like kind of building that momentum is the kind of like underlying thing that kind of kickstarts that like ability to create. Yeah. And something else I do with side projects in order to fit them in around work. And also for this reason that you're talking about this, um, like momentum is break every task down to a smaller thing as that it can possibly be because then I get to mark more stuff off the to-do list and it feels like I'm achieving more, even though it's, you know, the same big chunk that I needed to do. But that really helps me to feel like I'm achieving things. I like I get really inspired and motivated by that. Uh, and also it means that you can f- fit things into those awkward spaces where you might have like, I don't know, half an hour between a meeting. Oh, I've got this task that's going to take 10 minutes. I can get that done. Uh, whereas if I'd left it as the whole like hours long task that it was that small thing was a part of I might not have used that 10 minutes well if that makes sense yeah totally and so then do you kind of see like being able to be productive on your side projects differently from being able to be productive at work you know what I don't I treat them pretty similarly they all get written down in my bullet journal as things I want to do that day um, I just have two separate lists. So the one on the left-hand side of the page is my work tasks and then the right-hand side of the page is the side project tasks. Um, just so I make sure that I don't prioritize my time on like all one or the other and I'm making sure I get some, something done from each list. But yeah, I, I tend to approach them the same way, I guess, because I work on them both from the same workspace now that I work from home. So yeah, that kind of makes sense. Awesome. And I mean, I think that kind of like touches on to like we kind of have the tendency to create these divisions between like work projects and side projects and like hobbies and like just other random life stuff. But I mean, it's all like, it's all still your life, um, (laughs) regardless of kind of what box we put it in almost. Yeah, I love that. Um, And I'm really lucky to work for a company that's supportive of side projects, um, especially because by having side projects, I am one of our target audience, right? Because ConvertKit is email marketing software for creators. So by spending my time creating, it's actually really useful for my job as well. So that's cool. And so do you have examples of like either ways that your side projects have informed your work projects or like ways that your work projects have informed your side projects? Um, now that I work at ConvertKit and we're a company who like work in public is one of our mission statements. I feel like it's made my YouTube channel as a side project better because I'm able to share what I'm working on and I can share the whole process, like the behind the scenes of how I made this decision, what I started with, why I didn't go with it and all of that. I've loved being able to share that. That's been awesome. Um, So I feel like it's made my content more useful because I can be showing specifics in terms of projects and not just talking about general concepts um, because now I've got the work that I I can show that process with. But 
I guess the the main thing is that I wouldn't have my job if it weren't for my side projects. So yeah, they've been instrumental in my career. I how I met Nathan, who's the CEO of ConvertKit, is I was speaking at a conference to go back to conferences. It was the Sean West conference. He had asked me to speak about my YouTube channel and Nathan saw that talk and met me at the conference and was interested in hiring me. So I think if I hadn't spoken at that conference, so if I hadn't started the YouTube channel to get invited to speak at that conference, I probably wouldn't be in the work situation I am now. And I love my job. I love my life with this job. So yeah, um, side projects have been yeah, amazing in my career. Well, and I mean, I think like I can mirror that and like other folks that I've talked to can also mirror that um, in that like for me, it meant that like some of my side projects turned into like support through the Design Forward Fund with Envision. Yeah, that's amazing. And then like some of the side projects that um, Brendan Hufford, who does like SEO things, he was able to get sponsorships for his course. And so like, I think we have kind of, or at least I have the tendency to want to like monetize things, but almost by actively not doing that, you can kind of like keep it fun and keep it exciting. And then it like leads to monetizable opportunities anyway. Yeah. Like don't let that be the thing that you're worrying about at the start, because that sort of thing will will come if you focus on making something good and that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that you're now kind of thinking about closing down the t-shirt business or like have closed it down. Why did you kind of do that? And like, how did you make that decision? So I feel like I let my poor t-shirt company die a really long, like long, slow, painful death. (laughs) Um, And it had kind of been losing momentum for maybe five years. I would say that when I started my YouTube channel, all my excitement and side project time went into that and not into the t-shirt company. And I tried really hard to start with to run them both, but I found the YouTube channel much more creatively fulfilling and rewarding. And I found the work that I had to do to run it much more fun. Um, I love designing t-shirts, but I hated the whole admin side that came with running an online store. And turns out that's most of the work because, <laughs> you know, you can't be designing t-shirts all the time because then you got to have all the stock and, got to make sure you're selling it all. Uh, Yeah. It just wasn't fun, I guess, was the, what it came down to. Um, And people were losing interest in it. I found it harder and harder to sell my new lines that I was bringing out. And I think it's because I just wasn't passionate about it anymore. And I, I would give up really easily when one like little launch marketing thing didn't go well. I'd be like, oh, well, people aren't interested in this. I'm going to go focus on the YouTube channel where people are interested and I am getting good feedback. I, I decided to close it down in the end just because I wasn't enjoying it anymore. I didn't feel like I needed it in my life anymore, where it started as this mm-hmm. creative expression and it's this fun thing for me to work out how to do. It just became a chore and it became a thing that I would I would honestly dread like as soon as I got an email for an order, which was few and far between near the end. I'd be like, oh man, now I gotta like print and package a t-shirt. I gotta go to the post office. Uh, when am I gonna fit this in? And that's a, just not a reaction you want to have to selling something and making money. You know, you shouldn't be thinking about it in that way. So yeah, that's how I knew that I should probably close it down. And it was a hard decision to make mostly because it kind of felt like failing in a way that I had started this thing and I was talking a big game with it at the start. And, you know, I, 
past me had dreams of um, having my line in in stores, you know, like those little little stores that sell local goods and things like that. I was like, oh, there could be a rack with my T-shirts on it. And that was a goal I had at one point. And so I kind of wondered, oh, in closing it down, am I doing a disservice to my past self? You know, would 19-year-old Charlie be disappointed in 29-year-old Charlie for not following through on this? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I decided that, um, you know, present me matters more than past me. And, um, you know, I'm enjoying the other work that I'm doing. And so I could I could feel happy with that choice. Well, and I mean, it, it can be like so hard to kind of like shut down something that like you've invested so much time and effort in. Like it almost becomes part of your identity. And like, yeah, that's probably like a whole nother podcast. Would you say that now that you have kind of shut it down, that like, it feels like freeing almost that you kind of have that space to focus on other things. It's so exciting because it's not this thing that's hanging over my head and like making me feel guilty for not spending time on it or like interestingly closing it down. Um, like in the moment when I was trying to make the decision, I kind of felt like a, a bit of a failure, but now day to day, I like don't even think about it anymore. I think very fondly of it as this like, oh, that was the thing that I used to do in the past. That was the thing I did once. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it was still kind of there, like slowly dying in the background, I would just think about it and feel like a failure because it was sitting there dying um, and feel guilty that I wasn't putting enough time and effort into it. So yeah, it was, it was a great decision and, and very freeing to not have it like looming over me anymore. And so kind of with that said, um, how do you define latitude in like your projects and your work and in your life? Is latitude on a map the one where it goes horizontal or vertical? Because that's what I first think of. (laughs) It's the one that goes horizontal. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. (laughs) So I guess for me, latitude would be having having like a range of interests that creatively fulfill you and and making sure you're getting enough of each one at any one time. So like that might be working out, that might be cooking, that might be doing like your day job, that might be a side project or like this business you're trying to start on the side and um, just making sure that you're getting enough of all those different things that make you this well-rounded person, I suppose. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. For anyone that's interested to kind of learn more about either your side projects or what you're doing with ConvertKit, um, where should they go to kind of check that stuff out? CharlieMarie.com is probably the easiest place. It's got links to all the other stuff. I like posting my work on Dribble these days. I don't really have a portfolio online at the moment, but yeah, I love sharing what I'm up to on Dribble and Charlie Marie TV on YouTube, where I make vlogs of my life and showing you behind the scenes of projects and that sort of thing. All right. Awesome. And I'll drop that in the show notes, but that's uh, Charlie without an E, correct? That is correct. I think if you type it on YouTube now, I come up anyway. So that feels like a win. But yeah, there you go. You're an SEO expert. <laughs> I do not own the domain with an E though. So definitely remove the E from the domain. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. Um, glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks for tuning in. So here's how Latitude works. It's the full interview you just finished listening to. Then next time, I'll break down some of the topics and themes we just discussed. This short, focused, and extremely actionable episode goes even deeper into some of what we've covered today. Make sure to hit subscribe to get that and other upcoming interviews. This is also the part of the show where I'm supposed to ask you to rate and review the podcast. Instead, I want to make you a little more actionable about applying some of the things we've talked about today. So send a tweet, message, email, or carrier pigeon to a friend about the one thing you learned and how you'll apply it to your business this week. Or send it to me on Twitter at Zavzen. 
Links and more are in the show notes at createlatitude.com slash podcast. And I just want to remind you that you already have the tools you need to create a little more latitude in your day, your business, and your life.